Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph and also Rick Emmett, the poet. <laughs> and you're listening to Brent Jensen. And this is No Sleep Till Sudbury. Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, handcrafting otherworldly guitar pickups down in Detroit. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. To support the No Sleep Till Sudbury show on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Music. All right, he's back. The legendary Rick Emmett is my guest for the next two weeks, and we recorded the shows at Rick's home, as we always do. But here's what's new. Rick has written a book of poetry, now available on ECW Press, called Reinvention. And Rick and I go through it in detail. Have a listen. Well, here I am, back. <laughs> Brit, you're back. I'm so glad to be back. This is awesome. Yeah, we're in a different room now. We are. This yeah. is a fantastic room. I moved out of the basement and into the back library, you know. One, <laughs> one thing that caught my eye was the Allied Forces gold record in the wall. I know. That's my favorite of all of them. Like at a certain point in the house that we lived in for like 38 years in Mississauga, I had a, 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 an entranceway off the garage where all the, all the albums, and there must have been, I don't know, 20 some odd, 22, something like that. Yeah. And they were all hanging on this wall that kind of was a two-story down into the basement where my studio was kind of wall. And the thing that was great about them was you couldn't see them from any outside window. Oh, good. Which is another story because I once had guys come up and be, when we first brought Shannon home from the hospital and <laughs> yeah. we just got home and, she, and Jeanette was breastfeeding her, sitting in a rocker upstairs and these, you know, fans came. And I didn't have any fences around my house or anything at the time. And they they just came right up on my property, smoking joints and walking around on my deck and looking in all the windows and going, oh, look, hey, I can see a guitar. And I was going, oh, no. And we're up on the second floor and you're feeling like, oh, God, I'm trapped in my own house. Sure. You know, this is horrible. And so eventually these, you know, chowderheads went away. And then <laughs> uh, I said, okay, like we got to get, you know, fences built and we and so then we had a security company come and the guy said, your house is a weird one. You got a lot of basement windows. You got a lot of stairways up to second floor, uh, you know, yeah, lofts and things. He says, you can't really do a good security system. Plus you, you, you got cats. And he goes, so motion sensors, you know what I suggest? You build big, big fences and then get signs that say, beware of dog and then go and get a really big dog. <laughs> and so that's exactly what we did. Oh, really? Yeah, we got a German Shepherd. And he was great. He was an unbelievably great dog. Uh, and installed, obviously, a thing on the front door, which was like, sure. yeah, you know, sorry, the Emmets don't live here anymore. He could go on the intercom and go, I'm sorry, he's moved away. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was that story. So how, why did we get into that? Oh, yeah. So the wall with the good, you, you couldn't have the gold records hanging where anybody could see them. So then we moved here and then it was like, I don't, you know, gold records. I so kind of. So I said to my kids, "You pick one. You pick pick two if you like, and just promise me that you'll go and have a shrine somewhere in your house for your old dad 
with a gold record and I let him pick a guitar too from the guitar collection. I said, wow. pick a guitar and pick a gold record and then have a shrine somewhere in your house for your, for your old dad. So they all did that. But that record that you're admiring, that's kind of my favorite. That was the first American gold record for Allied Forces and yeah. I always kind of like that one. RCA looks great. Yeah, yeah. It's my favorite album. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I think it hangs together pretty good organically sort of it was the band was coming into its own you know finding its own feet and at the metalwork studio and yeah. yeah so that and that had magic and fight and yeah oh well, absolutely know, some some pretty good some pretty good tunes emotion. yeah yeah no there's no question yeah okay so i am here to talk to you today about your new book now this is a poetry book this is something very new for you now um this is a fascinating courageous, stirring glimpse, in my opinion, um, into how Rick Emmett sees the world in 2021. And that, you know, this, this isn't a rock star vanity project. It's in fact, uh, a very intimate and emotionally heavy look at the world through your eyes. You had told me earlier that this book of poetry helped you become yourself amidst uh, a series of commitments that you were bound to over the course of your life. And so like, you know, reinvention is a, a poignant reflection on your life in the sense that it provides a measure of proportion. And I really like this about the book in terms of who you really are beyond just being, you know, the front man of triumph, for example. So it, it establishes proper proportion for me beyond triumph. Um, you know, when you describe yourself as things like a rocket in cartoon costumes. I love that line. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. Thanks. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. But just such a, such a, a wonderful read. And, and, you know, we talked about the, the creative process um, like this is quite different from the creative process of, of songwriting. Yes. So what was it like to take that leap into writing a book of poetry? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't such a huge leap in the sense that I had always been at heart mm -hmm. a writer, mm -hmm. you know, and even though songwriting was kind of the thing that eventually I go, oh, this is the writing that I do. I wrote poems when I was in high school and, and in my notebooks from time to time, I'd have an idea and I would write things and it, it wasn't going to be, a, lyrics are you're really bound by the form that yeah. you must, you know, strike the same phrasing. You've got to have the rhymes in the right places, all of that stuff for lyrics. Mm -hmm. Whereas with poetry, you're given a, a lot more latitude. You yeah. know, there's a, there's a creatively, you can do different things and, and you can, um, it's not to say that it's not the same discipline mm -hmm. in order to come up with something that you consider to be good. You're just, you're not as tied to architecture. And that's not to say that poetry doesn't have its own architecture. It does. You you could write, you know, sonnets or haikus or whatever. Those things are very strict. In this case, when I just gave myself permission, I didn't worry too much about that. I really just worried about whether or not it felt right to me yeah. as it was coming out of my head and as I was going down on the page and as I was re reading it out into the air and I was going, no, this works. It's okay. You know, uh, this is fine. But as far as the leap goes, part of it is I was at a point and I'd retired from the road. Yeah. And I had decided, well, you know, um, I'm not retiring from creativity. I'm just retiring from, you know, 
packing my bag and going to the airport and getting the immigration visas and you know like that's what i'm tired of you know yeah. i'm tired of in and out of hotels every night and lugging stuff in rental cars and all of that so uh, but I wasn't tired of being creative and I, I you're not tired of performance, you know, yeah. performance is in my blood, but, uh, writing poetry becomes a different kind of performance and it's more of a, uh, an internal personal kind of a, of a thing where, you know, in its initial phases, you, you're not connecting to an audience. Uh, you're just sort of trying to connect to the cosmos, you know, connect to the ether. Yeah. And then if you make those connections and they feel right to you, then you're you're hoping you can find readers and, and find an audience for it. But of course, I already had a kind of a built-in safety net, for, you know, back to the idea of a leap. Uh, fans of mine were going to give it a go. They mm -hmm. were going to, you know, read it. And, and of course, ECW Press probably went, well, he's going to sell some. Like poetry <laughs> books don't sell much, Good right? Yeah. And they go, but, well, we might, you know, we might get our money back for the printing, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that, you know, that's part of it too. But um, my, like you said in your preamble there about how I'd said to you that it'd be coming myself more. Yeah. I, I feel like, as I said, always been a writer, mm -hmm. and I've done things like write uh, columns for magazines right. and written newspaper articles from time to time, and you know I've done other t types of writing. Mm -hmm. And of course, I I sat on a faculty at Humber College for a couple of decades. I wrote course curriculums. You know, I would literally be writing you know abstracts of what courses were going to be about. So I've done writing in a lot of different forms. Mm -hmm. And as the late Danny Christensen, who was the music director at Humber when I was there, said to me once, you know, Rick, you're one of the most pedantic people I've ever met. <laughs> and I, when I looked at him in horror, he goes, oh, no, but I meant that in the nicest way <laughs> possible. I go, oh, okay. Because, you know, I thought pedantic was like an insult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyhow, but it just means, I think, sort of trying to be articulate trying mm -hmm. to get things right. And I think writing, that's kind of what it's about. It's about trying to get things right. So poetry is is something where you're still just doing writing and that comes naturally to me. But the poetry part of it is the part of it where I go, this is where I'm allowed to sort of, I make my own choices about language and it's not like I wouldn't get out the list of synonyms and try to, you know, yeah. that's not one. That's not quite right. Let me see if I can find one that's worse. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, there's a, a website that I use called Rhyme Zone. It has, ah. but you can click, you know, do you want rhymes or do you want synonyms or do you want antonyms or, you oh, know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do, would you like to see 100 ways that it's been used? You go, yes, I would. <laughs> you know, the first five are Dylan. You go, oh, okay. Uh. Anyhow, you know, so... That's, that, that's, I would say that um, being able to call myself a poet, a published poet, mm -hmm. there's a very satisfying, especially at this stage of my life, and it might be even a little more satisfying than what I could call myself rock star or... Really? Yeah. I, I, I always loved a musician. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I liked that. And I liked songwriter. Mm -hmm. But um, rock stars tended to overshadow those things. You Absolutely. Know. 
poet doesn't really overshadow anything. Poet is just like, you know, there's something still a little romantic to me about that one. There is certainly, um, and you know, I would say that you know when I when I read Reinvention, I thought a lot about how broadly it was written, and what I mean by that, it wasn't all in a you know people think about the word poetry, and and they think you know it might be snooty, it might be rigid, it might be hyper artistic, whatever, right? Yes. But yours is very loose. It's very informal. It's not. It's not what you would expect. The thing about poetry, though, is I, like there were a couple of books that gave me sort of entry mm-hmm. um, in the sense that, I mean, I was thinking about uh, writing poetry and I'd already been scribbling at a few things. And then I, I got some books for research. So there was a book called um, The Poem Is You by Stephanie Burt. Yeah. And she teaches at in, in Yale, I think, or mm-hmm. Harvard or you know, one of the Ivy League schools. And it's a very textbooky kind of thing. But it covers a lot of modern poetry saying, here's these styles. And there's a school of this, and it arose in the Philadelphia area, and then blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, there was a West Coast thing that started. And so there was this type of poetry called ultra talk, which is really just like conversation. It really reads just like conversation. Right. And I went, I really like this. Yeah. Like, this is me. Her book was called The Poem Is You. So in other words, whatever you write is is who you are, is yeah. is, is what you are, you know, that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and so that was a really nice uh, release for me. And there was another book from ECW that was a guy named uh, Adam Saul. He's a poet that they, they publish. Yeah, Adam Saul's book is called How a Poem Moves, which for me, that idea of motion, motion and emotion and... and uh, Motion is lotion, you know, all of these kinds of things. Because music is something that is in a state of flux, that it flows and that it has a kind of a ephemeral liquid quality to it, then that is not that far away from poetry. Poetry has these same qualities, the same. So this thing about moving, moving your emotions, moving phrases, moving, you know, syllables, like it's about language, you know, and languages like music. I felt a strong affinity. Adam Saul, I, I, I sent him a copy of the book and I wrote in the, for the forward, I said, you know, you know, thanks a lot, but you are like the guy at uh, Ontario ministry of, you know, licenses. You, <laughs> you gave me license. So if there's any, if there's anything bad that comes out of this, I'm going to blame you because you gave me the license. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's a good segue into the next point. So in, in your book, there are a lot of recurring themes, waves, river, water, uh, the nature theme. Yeah. So reflective of that fluidity, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so so using these poetic devices just seemed to really come easily to you, I found. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there's a great deal of, of poetry yeah. uh, throughout the history of it that ties us back to nature. It comes, you know, because that's that's a constant about being alive is looking around and going, hmm, oh, clouds, oh, yeah, yeah, water, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, weather, oh, yeah, you know, oh, flowers, oh, you know, shit that smells, <laughs> you know, because as humans, 
this is what we interact through our senses. Mm-hmm. Nature is all around us. Uh, for me also, because I tend to be very agnostic mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't subscribe to the idea of, of a overarching, overseeing, omnipotent kind of, you know, nature of the universe. I see sort of more mother nature as the thing that we're, while we're here, that's what we're coping. That, and that has a lot more power than we do, you know? Um, so I kind of go, no, it's so that, and I think poetry returns to those things constantly just because of, Hey, water runs downhill. You know, and there's gravity's there and the planet is always spinning, you know, like these things are always happening and they're going to, they happen before I was born and they're going to be happening after I go. That's right. So the context for poetry, the larger kinds of contexts, they tend to be, you know, nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a good start into the book. So what I figured we would do is go through the segments of the book. So it's broken down into, I think it's five or six segments. And sure. each poem falls into the segments. So the first one is called the soul, the spirit, oh, humanity. Yeah. And and the, the very first poem in that segment is called The Search is Sacred. Right. Now I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Okay. And Bef- before you get into it, I'm mm. just going to let you know. Yeah. You got uh, an advanced copy. Yes. And a couple of the section titles changed. Oh, what? Yeah, <laughs> from when it got for yeah. So when they found that, my editor, Michael Holmes, yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic guy, great guy, yeah, uh, a guitar player. So that oh, might have yeah. been why he goes, hey, Rick Hammond, oh, maybe I'll sign him to it. Yeah, so Michael had suggested that some of the things might have been a little over the top. Mm-hmm. And he went, mm, okay, you know. And uh, so that one, he, he goes, what about, an, can you think of something else? And I went, well, what if we just called it The Humanities? And he ah. went, oh, that's fine. Sure. Okay. So instead of the soul, like making a joke about the guy going, oh, The Humanity oh, yeah. when the Zeppelin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's little jokes that I'm making throughout the book. That's one where he probably said, let's, let's be a little more serious with the titles. So part one is called The Humanities. Okay. Okay. So, and, and to my point about the snootiness of you know perceived snootiness of poetry, this is the the inverse of that, right? You're actually having fun with this a little bit, yeah. yeah. The and the other part of it too is like you know when I was in high school, the humanities was you know like English and history and and geography, and the humanities was going to lead you towards say a liberal arts degree. Mm. So humanities was you know when I taught at college and I was in a music department that's part of humanities you know sociology psychology these kinds of things so uh, i had two beta readers one of them was my cousin lives out on the west coast and one of them is a writer that lives in england jane christmas Mm -hmm. and they read my stuff and they went some of this stuff rick like there's a lot of territory you're covering here and maybe some of it i'm not even getting because i'm not getting clues and i went okay but if i organize them into sections and I give the sections a title, mm-hmm. then now you know what it is that I'm driving at. So those poems in the first, in part one, the humanities, they were sort of about, you know, the soul and and and, you know, some people's uh, religion or anti-religion or you know yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. And I that's how I group those together. Okay, I think yeah, that was what I was under. I I understood it to be about yeah, just the concept of organized religion. Yeah. 
So the first poem is called The Search is Sacred, and I'll read a little bit from this. So, so nothing is sacred except perhaps rigorous applications of scientific method, the undeniable logic of pure mathematics. So, you know, we're talking about atheism and being agnostic and all that stuff. So what is truly sacred to Rick Emmett? Well, skip to the bottom and read the last two or three lines. Anything is sacred that sparks a search for answers. Ah, uh, there it is. So that's what Rick Emmett believes is sacred, that I should be looking, that I should be seeking, mm -hmm. that I should never be satisfied with just sitting and looking at the horizon. I should get up and go and see what's there. Now, I'd sent something over to you when we were going over this, and... You know, I, I'd made the comment that people need conclusions. You know, humanity always needs to know the answer. Yes. And, and one thing that I picked up from this, this segment is that you say, you know, if you have love, you don't need all the answers. You don't need conclusions. And, and for me, that's kind of where the, the organized religion comes from, the God concept. If we don't understand something, I find that we need to have a conclusion we need to know. So there's a God and God made that. Yeah. Like, if we can't explain it. Yeah, well, I, and I think, you know, human beings, that's what they did. Yeah. <laughs> they invented God so that they could have an answer yeah. for all the questions that they can't answer, you yeah. know, because it, it does, and it can give you a, a feeling of, whew, like comfort. You know, this is not TV, so I just wiped my forehead when I... <laughs> um, but I think it's an easy way, to me, I think it's the easy way out, and it's it's... It's, it doesn't satisfy. It never worked for me, you yeah. know. But I do understand that there are people that they can find that in their, inside themselves. They're 100% satisfied. Their faith is strong. Mine isn't, you know. <laughs> Just, it, it doesn't work for me. You know, I, I don't feel it. I don't sense God as an evident thing in this life. I, it just, you know, when I was young, when I was little, I did. A large chunk of reinvention is its memoir. It's yeah. it's literally my life story, kind of you know, being told in poems. So you know, there's a poem in there about when my grandfather died. Yes, eleven, 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 twelve, and and telling his story, but it's also his story is partly my story of when he died, and I went, wow, he's gone, he's gone forever, he's never coming back. He's you know, and he's beyond consciousness yeah so that was the first time where i went in my life whoa when you're beyond consciousness you don't exist anymore you're gone and so that led me to sort of the metaphysical kinds of questions of you know can my consciousness survive my the the death of my brain right i'm <laughs> going no, I no, it doesn't. You know, I'm afraid not. You know, once once our brain's gone, we're gone. That's you know, right. and we're gone from this plane. I'm sorry, I can't find a faith that will tell me there's another plane. There isn't another plane. This is it. This is what we got. You know, that part of of the humanities mm. to me is bringing us. It doesn't take me away like up into divinities. It doesn't. That doesn't work for me. Humanity is just humanity. And that segment segues into life and death. Mm. And that theme continues. Um, there is a poem called Have a Good Day in that segment. 
and it's kind of a, you know, I said to you, it's kind of a no bullshit approach to humanity. Uh You know, we're born, we age and we die. Yep. And there's a line from that poem that goes, you get to return to the oblivion from whence you emerged. It's the same thinking, right? Without your brain to recognize that whether or not you have a soul, if your brain is gone, it's all gone. The big stumbling block for me, and it's in the poems, and it'll be in poems that I keep writing. Mm. Uh, it's about ego. Yeah. And I think religion, to a great extent, it's, a, it's about ego. It's about people going, well, wait a sec. No, me, I, I, me, 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 mine. I like, well, I don't want to not exist anymore. Mm. What, where can I still be me? Well, heaven. I can go to a heaven and I'm going to be the best me I'll ever have been. It'll be the best me that ever that I could ever want. And it's that to me this is all about ego. Mm-hmm. And you go, "No. <laughs> I'm afraid that's not how it works, you know. I think you should give your absolute best effort to being the best you you can be here now. Seek that, go for that, but why are you waiting? <laughs> like you wait till after you die. I Honestly, I I can't imagine when you see horrible, terrible things in life, you know, Mm. planes crashing into 9-11 and people jumping out windows and, you know, you see just this, you know, a tsunami hits and and piles of bodies outside of concentration camps. Mm. And you go, okay, how are we much different than from ants on an anthill? Right. You know, like uh, we're not. The difference, of course, is that we have this incredible gift of of self-recognition and, and consciousness, and we can ask ourselves big questions, which is what poems do. Right. It's like, what are the really big questions? Well, where was I before I was born, and where do I go after I die? And I is in all of those f- phrases and senses, and it's like, yeah. And I, one of the uh, challenges that I faced writing the book and, and I, I keep writing I'm, I'm working on you know a second book of stuff mm. and i go can i get the first person out of this can like can i get rid of i as a pronoun mm. and i realize oh man it's really really hard for me <laughs> like you know <laughs> because you know a lot of my career has been about me this self-aggrandizement you know this rock star kind of and then it's like people come along and they're sycophantic and they're going, so what can I do for you, Rick? Like, what do you need? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can, can we get you a cup of tea? You know, can we carry your amp for you? You know, like all of these, all of these things, you know? And then you go, yeah, well, maybe that's not what uh, good writing should be about. If, you know, in the end, once I'm dead and gone, long gone, what, what will it matter? But then of course you come back to the thing of, well, yeah, but, you're creating this record, this written record mm-hmm. of what was going on inside your stupid giant fat head. You know what I mean? So you go, hmm, I guess that that I can, I can never extract the first person out of it. It's subjective. No matter how I try to couch the language, you know, the subjective thing is always in there. So then and this brings me back to the whole ultra talk thing. Mm-hmm. And there's other forms of modern poetry where they go why are you worrying about that let's let's just fl- let it flow and just get it out onto the paper and then let's see what we got that that lava flow i think is a kind of an important part of poetry writing too that i you have to try to find that place where 
it's not even like you're channeling just yourself. You're channeling the way your self perceives the flow of life. Right. And that flow of life that, again, we're back to the thing of motion. Like if I can find that, like I think some of the best things that I wrote were things where I, I wasn't worrying about language so much. And I wasn't worried, like they were just like the poem Remembering Russell, which is kind of at the heart of the book, really. Mm -hmm. The eulogy that I could never deliver you know, in real life, because I, I would have never got through it. Right. You know, I would have been choked up and gasping for air after three or four lines, you know. But that just pretty much flowed out of me. You know, I mean, obviously I rewrite and I, I clean things up and stuff, but yeah. that one was just, not stream of consciousness, but, you know, that was lava flow, you know. Unfiltered. Yeah. That, that that's That's where the really kind of beautiful stuff is. Yeah. And uh, you know what, as a musician, of course you experience that sometimes when you're improvising and you're yeah. blowing in a solo and you're just, you're not even on this plane anymore. You know, yeah. you've, you've kind of transcended it and you're in this place where you're, you're doing something where you go, yeah. And I could see how some people may go, yeah, that's a gift from God. Yeah. Or you're, you're communing with the muses or, you know, yeah. whatever. They, they give it some sort of spiritual, you know, divine kind of, and I, I go, so, well, certainly it, it feels that way. That like the part of my brain, the lobes of my brain that are making that happen, mm -hmm. they, they go, yeah, yeah, that's it. An angel was talking to me. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that same segment, you provided a, a tribute to Gord Downing, which I thought was really cool, called Game Changer. Where, where did the, I was surprised to see that. Where did that come from? Uh, well, I'm, and I saw, I did a show once where I opened for The Hip. Hmm. And I'd never seen them. So I, you know, stuck around and went out and watched. And Gordoni is just this, wow, he was like a, a force of nature. He was so charismatic. And I just could not take my eyes off him. And I was going, man, this is one of the best front men for a band I've ever seen. Because he's so unique and he's so, you know, I mean, there's a Mick Jagger kind of quality to what he does. Uh, but it's not Mick Jagger. It's, it's, it's Gord and it's Gord being Gord in Gord's way, which, so that made me a fan of his. I, I was never a huge fan of the band necessarily, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I became a huge fan of him. So then I was playing a gig out in uh, Saskatchewan in Regina mm -hmm. on the night, on the day that they played their final show in Kingston. Uh -huh. which was televised. And so I was down in, the, I'd already played my set, come back in the hotel. So it was kind of dinner time-ish, I think, for us, which would be, you know, the, the time difference between Kingston and, and they're playing eight o'clock at night or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it was on the big screens in the bar oh. and a lot of the musicians, it was one of these, you know, old rock day, you know, so there were bands from the 80s kind of, you know. So yeah. I think Carol Pope had played on that show and, you know, it was just, Bands, Canadian bands from that era. Mm. And, you know, we're just having drinks and, and uh, it was on the big screen and I started watching. And then I was transfixed. Like, I'd never seen anything like it. This guy was, you know, dying of cancer. And yet he was putting on this rock show, yeah. like screaming and howling in the face of death. And mm -hmm. just, you know, and then acting like the court jester and doing a soft shoe. And, and I was going... Holy shit, you know, like that just to me, it redefined what 
a, a rock musician on stage could be, you know, should be. So, you know, I had a few notes in my notebook that night and I knew that eventually I was going to, you know, pay tribute to him in some way, shape or form. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah, I wrote that just thinking about what he'd done, the path that he'd walked and, you know, feeling a little humbled. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope the humility comes through. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get to a little bit more of that later on. Uh, in this same segment, one of my favorite and most stirring passages is reinvention of reinvention rather is, is four stanzas. Oh yeah. It's, it's this brilliant kind of seasons metaphor for the life cycle. So going through spring being the birth and then winter being the death. And the ending of this is absolutely jarring the way that this ends. And as a writer myself, I, I thought, you nailed it because you want to pull, you want to reach out from the book and grab people by the shirt. And you did that with this. So I don't want to spoil it or should I, should I read this? I don't know. I don't even know if I read this, if it'll come across, you have to read it yourself. No. Yeah. No thing is one of the things that I'm really enjoying about this is to, is to get you to to hear you read them. And then I go, Ah, so in his head, that's how it, like, oh, because yeah. I, I did an audio book for this. I had to read my oh, own stuff. Yeah. And it's a bitch, like, know. you know, to, to, to kind of capture the tone the way and, you know, just the right inflection and the right phrasing and the right rhythm and all of that. Yeah. It's like, it was hard. It was yes. really hard work to do it. But then I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if you could get like Christopher Plummer to you know to read your poems like so I'm interested to hear you read it so oh, please God. do come on you can put me on the spot yeah damn straight it's almost like the needle coming off a record it's that's just, what it's like it's yes a, it's abrupt yeah so try that it makes you go okay <laughs> <laughs> and then you're gonna do it and we go yeah can we try that again can we do that one more, more time <laughs> okay go no so serious now okay for the turning of the wheel the spin around the sun Orbits in the circles, in the circles, in the circles, in the. And the quiet at the end is very yeah. important. That's the thing because you're waiting and it's not coming. Yes. And it's like, it's over. Yeah. And so that's my imagining of maybe that's what it's like. That Although, you know, my dad recently passed away. And he'd been going through dementia issues, you know, towards the end. He was 92. He almost made it to 93. Mm-hmm. He only had a month to go. Yeah. Um, but he literally got to the point where if I said, Dad, do you know how old you are? He would say, 100. Mm. Like he would, he had no idea anymore. Yeah. There were things that were already gone. Little by little, I think he got to the point where it's not him anymore. That, that conscious mind is kind of gone. So I just think that uh, death is just this cessation mm-hmm. of consciousness. I tried to find a way to put it into words and make it so. And, you know, you're quite right that it's kind of like, you know, the needle is on the record and you push the little bar and it's like, wait. It stopped, you know. Right. And so I imagine that's kind of what it's like. It's just like the switch will go and that's it. But it's so brilliant because you try to find that word that will just kind of tie everything up so nicely. 
but you go beyond that. It doesn't have to be a word. That's no. the, that's the best part no. of this. And one of the lovely things about poetry that I discovered writing was mm. that it's not just a question of the words. It's mm. a question of how do you position them on the page? You know, do you indent? Uh, are you using a capital at the beginning of the line or is it, uh, you know, lowercase? Mm -hmm. uh, punctuation, you know, do you use punctuation and space? Because you can if you like, you know, like all of these things can affect the flow of it, the rhythm of it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so it's not just a question of, say, vocabulary where I go, you know, like I tend to be, and here's a tendency of mine. Like, let's say I've used the word, ah, you know, um, soaring. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're going through the, the phrases and then I've used the soaring as a, so then two verses later, I use the same word again. And then I go, I already used that word in this poem. I don't want to use it twice. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to find a synonym for soaring, you know. So I'll go searching, you know, to try and find something. Oh, and sometimes I'll go, no, I like it here in the second place better than, because I, I like this idea. So I scratch it out and I move them things around and it's, it becomes more like a, a puzzle. Yeah. Where you're, where does the piece fit better right. in order to create the picture, you know? Yeah. And that songwriting was very much the same for me, lyric writing, but, but poetry has even more parameters where you can play. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I want to stop a phrase, so there's words missing, but that's because that communicates the idea better, which is, that's what I did. You know, I went, just stop. <laughs> just stop right in the middle of the sentence stop it's perfect like it really is i read that and went oh and just paused for a minute it was it was it was just so great thanks although you know uh can i claim originality for that i'm not sure that i i'm sure really i'm sure that trick's been used you know yeah, hundreds of thousands of times by hundreds of thousands of poets i don't think i've ever seen that well yeah Great. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Born to Pay is next, and it is a it, it's a it's a wistful reckoning. It it does. It has some melancholy in it. Yeah. yeah there's no question. Now the and, good news is, sorry, the good yeah. news is it also exists as a song. Yes, sir. Yes. So should we? Uh, Do you want me to? You, we shall I try an attempted version of it? Yes, please. Okay. I'm sort of in behind my mic stand here. I'm going to go grab my guitar. All right. So it was a weird uh, couple of weeks for me. My son got married in Niagara Falls, outdoor wedding, and then a big reception. And I had to sing a Queen song, You're My Best Friend, for their first dance. Oh, wow. So that's now all four of my kids, all their weddings, I, I got, to, that's so I got cool. to sing at their weddings. Yeah. But it was like I was working on this because you know that tune. It's like it's got this gang, 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 yeah. gang. It's a Wurlitzer electric piano. But they wanted something that was more like a Michael Bublé swung version of just voice and guitar. So I was working that up while mm -hmm. I was, you know, working on other stuff and doing all these interviews for the poetry. Oh, yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. I don't want this to be too loud. Do you think? Can you hear that all right in this mic? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
There's an old man in the mirror Gaining on me fast His claim upon the future Overtakes our glorious past And when it's coming down to him or me It'll all work out okay Cause we both know the price That we were born to pay When I was just a boy Full of promise, green and tender I took so much for granted No accounting for surrender But now the changes come so fast At the speed of light they say Now that's the price Every child is born to pay Oh, devil at each crossroad Angel in my ear Should I turn to face the music Learn the language that I hear Should I wage it all and let it ride Or fold this hand I hold and walk away There's a sobering reflection I've grown to recognize Telltale signs of showbiz lines from a master of disguise But it looks like he's still game With another round to play He'll eddy up the price he's born to pay He knows I'm good to carve the damage Each and every day Cause we both know the price That we were born to pay Yeah, we both know we were born to pay Thank you. Well done, sir. Very nice. So let's um, finish out this segment and then maybe we'll do part two after that. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. So definitions, perspectives, and choices is another poem in this uh, in this life and death segment, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit from this one. So mortality is the thing that makes sense to me, and when your sense slash senses are done, you are done. So we talked about this already. So you you came to this realization, you know, around the the time of the death of your grandfather. Anything else to add? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> mortality. Yeah. Do I have anything to add? <laughs> In my life, I've had uh, surgery four times mm. where I've been knocked out. I have zero feeling or understanding of where I went once the drugs hit my system. I was gone. It's like magic. Yeah, and it's it's your brain. <laughs> My brain is gone. And like I've had, you know, knees re not replaced, but you know, knee surgeries, uh, a, a replacement of ligaments. Uh, I've had a hernia surgery, you know, like. Mm. And my wife just recently had both of her hips done. Wow. And you know, when uh, doctors describe what they do to your body mm. when they're replacing your hip. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Oh. Like you, when they put you out, 
it's a good thing you're out because they break your bones <laughs> and really? oh sideways they're trying to break your bone out of your hip oh, so it's Lord. it's it's horrid it's Ugh. it's it's crazy bad so <laughs> you know she wakes up from the anesthetic she's a little nauseous and stuff and you know it's like she there's no memory like mm. i would, you don't float above the table or any of that stuff like i just i feel like um the truth of the matter is that our ability to reason about anything, our ability to experience things, mm-hmm. it's related to the fact that we're alive and that yeah. our brains are alive. And as soon as you can shut off parts of your brain, you're not alive anymore. And you're not going to be alive in some heaven somewhere. To me, that's just this incredibly egotistical kind of thing that people are imagining. No, no, no. I, no, I'm not gone. I, I, you know. And then the, the other thing about loved ones is like, oh, oh, they're they're still, I, they're still here. Like I can sense that they're with us. Yeah. And I go, well, if you're saying that you sense them, you feel them inside, and you're carrying something around of them inside you, and that's, I, I buy, I'll buy that. Yeah. And I'll buy the fact that, let's say, you know, our dear departed loved ones. Yeah. You and I are both carrying some of that around inside us. Yes. The, the sorrow that we had for losing them, the the, the great memories of who they were. Mm-hmm. And is there some kind of energy, some kind of psychic energy that might exist between us and in, in the sense of our loss, the depth of our loss? I'm agnostic in that sense. It may well be that mm-hmm. there are things of energy, psychic energies, but... That's because we're alive and we can make these psychic energies happen. If somebody's saying to me, oh, I can see your aura and your aura is tremendous. I go, yeah, okay. Well, it's possible okay. I, like I, because I'm a living thing. And so there may be in the same way that there's pheromones that I can't smell, yeah. you know, there may be a light aura that's emanating from me that, I, yeah, you know, the spectrum of my eyeballs, I don't see. I mean, I just got my cataracts done. So, you know, it's possible <laughs> that I'm seeing color spectrum. <laughs> Because I was losing a great deal of it before, but anyways, I mean, I just don't, I don't buy the fact that that uh, you know there's angels and there's spirits and there's a heaven yeah. and there's like it just doesn't work for me, you know. So for all that stuff, I mean, I I I would like to, I would like to, but I, it's like it's not there. I, nobody has any evidence of it being there, and and you know, I think back to, you know, the experience that I went through, and we'll get into that later. But right after I lost my wife at that very point, I remember for about five minutes truly understanding organized religion for the reason that that person that you've been with for that long isn't there. But it's not that she's just not there. She's not over there either. She's not in Japan either. She's yeah. just not, she doesn't exist anymore. Yes. And that's very, very hard to come to grips with as a human being. Totally. And I mean, like, like my wife and I went on a, a riverboat cruise, uh, you know, Danube and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that is like day to day. You can just go see more cathedrals. Yeah. They're all over the place, you know, and castles because, you know, uh, the nobility, uh, the the kings and the queens, well, they were gods representative on earth. And so there was something, you know, there was religion tied into that. Yeah. And the, the amount of money and the amount of energy that went into this 
And there's a couple of lines in the book where I say, you know, like cathedrals are not evidence of God. Right. They're evidence of man's belief in a God. And we can believe almost anything mm-hmm. and believe in it so strong that now our will can make things happen where we go, see, that's evidence of God. You go, mm-hmm. that's evidence of your willpower. That's evidence of your you know, belief. That's right. That's not evidence. That, uh, that's, that's evidence. Right. <laughs> you know, you see all of these things and you think, all these cathedrals and, and castles, and I go, oh, my God, so much human blood, sweat, and tears went into th- paying homage on this level, you know, and it's like, to what end? What What if we'd instead tried to be solving, you know, world hunger? And right. what if we were, the amount of energy that now and money that goes to, to religion so that religion can propagate itself, mm-hmm. what, what if it went to trying to find us Cure for cancer, because we could sure use that, you know. But then we live in a world where right now, you know, there's people that are, they demonstrate because they're anti-vaxxers and they don't believe in science. And and I just go, oh my God, like the Taliban has come back into power. And the the morning paper was talking about how they're going to reinstitute the whole idea of going to chop off people's hands. They're probably going to have public executions again. But for sure, they're going to go back to chopping off people's hands. And you go, oh my God. It's like the the world keeps insisting on going back to the 7th century. And why? Because they say, because God said, told us. The Quran says we have to do this. So, And you go, oh man. Are you sure that's not just your interpretation of the Quran and you might be getting it wrong? No, this is God's word. and you, so, And we have to do what God says. And you go, okay. You are taking us back to the Stone Age, mm. you know, like this is horrifying and terrifying. And you people over there that are tossing gravel at the prime minister, you're our version of yeah. those Koran guys. You're being like Stone Age. It's so stupid. It's so ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, I... I like to believe that I'm open-minded, that I that I will accept other people. But the whole thing of writing the poetry, I realize I'm riding this this teeter totter mm-hmm. between how much I love human beings and I and I care about them, and I and I want to try and write things to make the world a better place and make me a better person. <laughs> but. You know, then the teeter totter swings the other way, and I go, "You ignorant, you terrible! I can't. Oh, you you know, you're ruining the world. You're ruining life for for the rest of everybody. And you think you're righteous. You think that you're doing that, and you're making the world a better place. And you go, oh, like I just, you know, so." Poetry was a kind of a thing where I was able to go, I'm going to try and deal with this. I'm going to try and cope with this because I'm not just, you know, you and I are reviewing this stuff and you talk about things and I go, well, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about death. And I'm over here. I was, I was thinking about death again. And then over here, well, also we were thinking about death. It's not just that. I mean, I'm thinking about life too. And I'm thinking about like having a sense of humor. And there's, there's lots of things that, Poetry can do, and it can be. 
at, at the bottom of it for me, emotionally, it was also about, man, I, I got some anger issues. Like I got some yeah. stuff that just really, I, I, I got to get it out somehow. And so poetry was at least giving me an opportunity to be able to say, you morons, <laughs> you know, you horrible, terrible people. Yeah. So that, that was a, at least it was a, a an outlet for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The last poem in this segment, we finish on a positive note, even out of the negative, you can choose the positive. So it's in the choosing. Yes. Yeah. Options. Yeah. You know? And we all, we've always got them. Yeah. You know, and can I choose? And this was a hard thing for me in my own life because, um, I had anger mm-hmm. that I wanted to hold on to, and I did not want to let it go. I did not want to forgive. I certainly was never going to forget. I'm wired so that that's never going to happen. <laughs> but I didn't want to forgive either because I, I wanted to hold on to my anger. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, that's not right. That's that's terrible. That's horrible. I have to learn to let go of those things. I have to learn to be a better person. And it wasn't easy. <laughs> No, it's not. It wasn't easy for me to become a better person. Yeah. It's it's not. (laughs) You know, I've said before, I've said this to Amy, nobody wins the war of bitterness, you know? Yeah. It it hurts you more than... I'm the same way. I get angry about things and I get very vengeful. But at the end of the day, it hurts you just as much. I know. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. We only get one kick at this can. You know, we really do. That That's the challenge. Yeah. Are you going to spend it being angry and being vengeful is a good word. Yeah. yeah. Like, although, you know, it's, it's weird how we're wired. Like mm-hmm. think about kids and comic books yeah. and how the whole idea of a superhero is that, well, bad guy's going to get his ass kicked. <laughs> you know, like that's what's going to, we're going to, kids are going to go damn straight up and wait for that. That's right. I couldn't wait till the, when bad guy gets his up, his comeuppance. Yeah. My wife and I were watching a TV show the other day and there, there's this uh, investigative journalist mm-hmm. and he's really starting to become an asshole that you really just hate. At one point she just leans over to me and she says, well, we can't wait to see him get it in the third <laughs> reel. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's yeah. like, you know, we, we do, we are wired Oh yeah, that that's what happens. They, you know, like there's the thing where uh, Jerry Seinfeld talks about uh, sports teams. Yeah, and he goes, "Come on, in the end, really, you're just cheering for laundry." <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is a great, great line, right? Because it's it's kind of true. They're mercenaries and they move around, oh, and God, they, you know, yeah. but you know, they're going to wear. And so we watch the, the the stuff go down, and oh, they they get angry at each other, and we're getting angry too, and we yeah. oh, we want revenge. We must get revenge. It's like you know, I guess it was um, you know uh, gladiators in the Colosseum. You know, yeah. it was like it's blood sport, and it it's we're not just human; we're animal. You know, there's this animal thing about the way we're wired. Yeah. And so we do have the, 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 the flight or fight. And the, the fight is a big part of, you know, said the guy that wrote Fight the Good Fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, we're human animals. There's no question. Yeah. All right. Are we taking a break? We are. That's Another it. Another cup of tea or something, and then we'll get back yeah. at this. And then we'll tackle uh, 
the next segment, which is there's politics in everything. Oh, we, need, we need a break before we tackle that one. Okay, good. All right. All right. I need to pee desperately. <laughs> and I didn't even start drinking the water yet. Uh-oh. All right. That concludes part one of our chat. Join us next week for the conclusion of our discussion about Rick's new book of poetry, Reinvention. Get out there and get your copy. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Rick Emmett. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.